morning to you all. Uh, I'm sure it will greatly help you to have that list of names in front of you this morning as we look at it together. There's some great names in there, aren't there? You know, uh, if you are looking for a name for a new child, uh, especially, especially a son. I mean, I, I particularly like Mad-Eye or, or Togamar. They're, they're quite good names, aren't they? And they sound funny to us, these names, don't they? But I guess that's just because we're, we're so, so distant in culture. Uh, they might sound very normal <laughs> to people living at the time. I'm sure they did. It reminds me of, um, of a time when I was, uh, I was preaching in North Kingston, and a friend of mine, some of you might know, Taras, who's a, a missionary at the moment in Poland, uh, he'd come and he'd brought a Russian lady with him. And I was preaching through um, the book of Jonah. And every time I said the name Joppa, they were just in stitches. They were sort of crying with laughter by the end of it. I said, what on earth was going on? You brought this lady to hear the gospel, and there you are, giggling away in a seat. He said, the word Joppa, it doesn't, tra- it doesn't sound good in Russian. I'm like, um, <laughs> I'd say no more, but if you know Russian, you probably... I'm still baffled, but there we go. Okay, let's pray, and, let's, and then we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you for your word, that every part of your word, the Bible, every part of it's got something to teach us because it's a living word from you. It tells us about you. It tells us about our own hearts. Father, it tells us about your wonderful saviour, because everything points to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd help us this morning. By your spirit, Lord, open, open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful truths from your word. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, history, especially sort of, you know, the 16th to 19th century in the West, which we'll probably be, you know, we're, that's our heritage, isn't it? Unfortunately, that history is littered with the atrocities that one nation has done to another. And clearly, if you look at the history books, racial prejudice has played a large part in how those atrocities were excused, certainly at the time. There was a a widespread belief in the early modern era particularly that there were different races of people and that some of those races were superior and some of those races were inferior. Now, when someone looks very different to you, whether because of the, the color of their skin or any other physical feature, it becomes easier to think of them as being inferior or superior, as perhaps as less human. And therefore, you can excuse it, it can become like, oh, well, they're fair game to be trampled on, to be exploited by those who are, well, inherently superior. It's a really messed up way of thinking, don't you think? And, and it's strange to me, as I look at it, and I love history, but it's strange that that way of thinking was going on at the same time, precisely the same time, that the Bible had finally, was finally being translated into the language of the masses. And then with the advent of the printing press, with Gutenberg uh, and those that followed him, was being distributed throughout Europe in a language people could read. Why do I find that strange? Because, I mean, just look at what we've just read. Even a superficial reading of the first book of the Bible and the whole premise upon which racism is built simply falls apart. I hope you can see that. Why does it fall apart? Well, because according to the account of Genesis, 
there is only one race. There's only one race. One scholarly paper points it out and says this. Listen, let me quote it from you. Neither race, class, nor caste are biblical words. The terminology, as systematically developed and defined in modern times, was unknown in the ancient world, though discrimination on the basis of ethnic identity was evident. The characteristic phrases in Greek, to genos, ton anthropon, or in Latin, humanum genus, sum up the reality. Race means those descended from one common stock. And the only large-scale application of the term in the scriptures is to humankind as a whole. See how that works? There's only one race. All of us are members of Adam's race. That's the story we've been reading, isn't it, in Genesis? If you go back far enough, you will find that, that we are directly related to one another. I wonder how that makes you feel as you look around you. We're directly related to one another. And as this chapter, difficult to read though it is, reveals, each one of us is also a descendant of Noah. Each one of us descended from one of his three sons, Shem or Ham or Japheth. All of us here. That's your ancestor right there. So good morning, my wonderful diverse family. We are one family. Now this is a somewhat challenging chapter. Uh, at first glance, it just does look like a collection of names, uh, and to be fair, it is, with a, with a couple of exceptions. It takes us through the family lines of Noah and his sons, giving us, cluing us in, giving us a clue about how the nations that were founded by them spread across the earth. And we'll find out more about how that happened uh, in, in the chapter that follows, so don't miss next week how that spreading happened, the dispersion happened. But, but really, what do we do with Genesis chapter 10? I mean, that's a question that's occupied my mind quite a lot uh, this week. Why is it here? Is it, is it just been put in here for completeness, just so that we can join the dots between, between Noah's family and the next big thing that comes along, which is, which is basically Abraham in chapter 12? Is, is that all this is here for? Well, it does do that. But it also has some very important contributions to make, and, and I hope you're going to see those this morning. So we're going to look this morning at this chapter under the headings, three headings, a common family, a common heart, and a common grace. That's where we're going this morning. So take a look with me then at the chapter, and we're just going to look at the beginning and the end, the bookends of the chapter. Just observe them with me, the first and last verses. Verse 1, this is the account of Shem Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then verse 32, bookending it, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Those verses then remind us that everything between them all the nations of the earth, as they spread out, they come from the clans of Noah's sons. We are one race. We are one family of mankind. One family of mankind. And that's kind of the first point I want us to see, this common family. 
It's good to pause and just think about that a little bit, I think, before we go on. Because once we get past Genesis 11, it can really seem like everything from that point forwards in the Bible is focused only really on the history of the Hebrew people. You notice that? It seems like after Abraham, God's not really interested in any of the rest of these nations. We've got the whole load of this Bible. It's all just really focused on one, one people group all through the Old Testament. Now, I, I think we'll find, actually, that when we get to even to Genesis chapter 12, you'll find that startlingly that is not the case, but we'll get there. But here is a chapter all about the nations then, just before we start focusing really in on Abraham and his descendants. And it tells the reader about the origins of every people group on the earth. It's a fascinating document, actually. So let me just quickly point a few highlights out. Uh, you've got three sections, verses 2 to 5, 6 to 20, and 21 to 31. Can you see those? And they tell you in broad terms about the three sons of Noah and those who came from them. So in broad terms, then, the descendants of Japheth are in verses 2 to 5. And they eventually head north. There's a map I can pop up. There we go. You can see it. That's the red color there. So the descendants of Japheth head north. They become the Indo-Europeans. They establish the first nations in Europe and then further east. The names seem to indicate you know, geographical areas, but basically people say is from the Aegean Sea to the Caspian Sea. All of that area up at the top there in the north. And, and this would include the nation, you know, big common nations that we know, like Rome or Greece and India. Likely, lots of us come from this line. There you go, you've learned something. You're probably a descendant of Japheth, most of you. And incidentally, this includes the areas that the Apostle Paul travels to on his missionary journeys in Acts. He's reaching to the descendants of Japheth. Isn't it interesting? So that's verses 2 to 5. And then the middle section, big chunk there, the descendants of Ham in verses 6 to 20. They seem to mostly head south. So they head down into North Africa, Egypt. Uh, they also, through Nimrod, we get a big sort of excursus there, don't we? Through Nimrod, they have a powerful stronghold in Mesopotamia, uh, Iraq, Iran, that sort of area. And they also spread throughout Canaan, the promised land. So all the, the tribes there in the promised land, they're all coming from the descendants of Ham. And then finally, we have the descendants of Shem, verses 21 to 31. And they, of course, become the main focus. That's, that's why they are the last here. They are the part of the story we're going to follow. They settle, it seems, largely in the Arab Peninsula and a bit up into Mesopotamia. By the way, Eber, do you see him in verse 25? He is apparently the origin of the name Hebrew. Do you know that? He's the father of all the Hebrews. And that's through his son, Peleg, who we get another little detail there, during whose life the earth was divided. It's an interesting expression, isn't it? Most likely it's a reference to what we're going to read in the following chapter, where the nations are dispersed throughout the earth at the Tower of Babel. Okay, so you clued in. You got the shape of the, the chapter. We just looked at it briefly. This chapter contains, people say, a collection of 70 names. It's roughly that. Uh, and that's a number that is symbolic of, first of all, seven, 
completeness. We kind of, you know, people who know their numbers in the Bible will know this. Seven is to do with being complete, like a week. We complete the week with seven days. And, and an order of magnitude, ten, meaning, basically meaning lots in the Bible. When you, get a, when you get a zero at the end of something, it just means lots. And so my best guess then, reading as many books as I could here, is this is to signal to the reader that, first of all, A, God has all the nations accounted for here. God hasn't missed anyone. This is all the nations. And B, that they, the nations are fulfilling their task of multiplying so that they can fill the earth, which is what God has told them to do. So we've got this, it's going, it's going right, it's on the right course. And some of the names in this chapter, other thing to just notice here, are of individuals. And some are of peoples. How do you tell the difference? Typically, any of the names in here ending in I-M, im. Yeah, though that's the Hebrew plural. That's how we express the Hebrew plural. And that would mean a group or, or a tribe of people. So we've got a mixture of individuals and tribes spreading out to keep the number to 70, <laughs> you see. Scholars tell us, then, that this is actually the most ancient record of the roots of the nations that we possess. This is an ancient document, and it is fascinating. One scholar, actually a liberal scholar, so this is not a Bible-believing scholar, concedes that this record, let me quote, he says, this record stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even amongst the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to the distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The Table of Nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Now, that might excite you if you're a historian, but where are we going with this? See, the book of Genesis insists then that no matter where you come from, however far scattered over the earth, every one of us was made in the image of God. We've all come as descended from Adam. And that, that's what it means to be part of the human race. And so what fundamentally unites us being in the image of God is far, far greater, deeper, and more profound than anything that could possibly divide us as human beings. There is then such a thing as, we can use the expression, the brotherhood of mankind. It's a very sort of hippie-sounding term, isn't it? There is a brotherhood of mankind. We are all from the same family. Now, in effect, this is actually a truth that the Apostle Paul expresses when he's talking with the Athenian philosophers up on Mars Hill. Let me quote to you from that. It's from Acts 17. Paul says to them, and he actually quotes this from their own writers, from their own poets, Greek poets. He says this, For in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. It's a really interesting way of looking at humanity, isn't it? the offspring of God, every single one of us. That is a universal truth. And we are in that fairly narrow sense, I think, children of God. In that all of us came from Adam. All of us bear, however faintly, and we must never forget this, a, a residual of that, that image, the remnants of that image of God in mankind. We have value and dignity and worth. We are precious. All life is precious. We are his creation. He sustains every one of us. But that, of course, must not be confused with being in the family of God. So we're all kind of, in one sense, 
in that sense, generally speaking, children created and sustained by God. But we mustn't confuse that with actually being in God's family. To be in God's family is to be chosen and adopted and welcomed in, to have the hope of eternal life, to be adopted through Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. It's only by faith in Christ that we truly become heirs with him of eternal life. But that doesn't take away from the fact that every one of us is, is made with value. But first of all, as we consider this, this crazy list of names here, I want you to see then that it points to a truth that I really shouldn't need to emphasise. That if we view others through the lens of Genesis 10, then we should not be so quick to divide from one another, especially by the way that we look. Or to think that the wonderful variety in the way that we look is anything other than an amazing display of God's diverse creative genius. The point is this, is that all of you lot, me, and, me included, we all came from the DNA of one couple. A fascinating thought. We all share one common family. Okay, that's very basically what we can see in this chapter. But unfortunately, something else that we share, we all share a common heart. Let's have a look at that little, uh, little sideline in verse 8. Take a look with me. We're now in the descendants of Ham. And Moses writes that Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it's said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneth in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Nimrod is the only name in this list that we're given further information about. Nimrod. Are we to take him as representative of the whole? Well, if so, it's not a pretty picture, actually, with Nimrod. It seems that even in Moses' day, Nimrod was known for his ancient reputation. He was a notorious. They had a saying about Nimrod, a famous historical figure. He is introduced here as mighty. He's a mighty one on the earth. The word warrior there has has sort of been added by the NIV for clarification. It's not there in the text. This, he's, he's a mighty, he's a mighty one. But I think, it, I think they've got it right. This is the same way that the notorious, do you remember the Nephilim of chapter 6 in the fall of mankind? That's the same way they were described before the flood. They were the mighty ones. And Nimrod here, he raises his head, I'm a mighty one too. It's fair to assume this hunter was not just a hunter of wild animals, though maybe he was. He was a hunter of men. He was a violent man. The saying in verse 9, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, some suggest is probably the equivalent of saying something like, a great tyrant like Hitler, <laughs> something like that. It's quite a hard saying to pin down, actually. It probably means something like Nimrod 
the mightiest of hunters, the mightiest, the champion, in other words. The, the, the whole expression there, before the Lord, what does that mean? It's probably just a way of saying, amongst men, he has no equals. So we think of him as before the Lord. He's the mighty hunter before the Lord. Here is one bent on conquering, making a name and a great kingdom for himself. He founded the great cities of Mesopotamia, it says here. You know, amongst others, he's got, he's got Babylon there and Nineveh. I mean, they are so well known, aren't they, in the Bible? They were to become the great superpowers, the enemies of God's people, actually, later on in the Old Testament. And Babylon itself is very interesting because Babylon is, is a name that's, that goes right through the Scriptures. It becomes a, a symbol in the Bible for the kingdom of man in opposition against God. Babylon. It's all about man and the might of man. And an intriguing feature here is that, again, according to scholars, the meaning of the name Nimrod, this is why I think, I think we're on the right track here, his, his name actually means, it's Hebrew for, we shall rebel. An interesting name to give to us. Maybe he gave himself that name. I am Nimrod. I am the rebel. The rebel without a cause. Well, with my own cause, can we say. It's quite striking, isn't it? You look through this chapter, chapter 10, and it's covering several generations after the flood. And yet there is no suggestion here that any of these tribes, any of these peoples, uh, have a reputation for following the Lord, for calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? As noted a few, few chapters ago, each of these nations seems to take with them a memory of this global catastrophe. So they've got in their histories a memory of the flood. That's why we've got these flood accounts all over the world. Yeah? They're taking with them a memory of this. They know it happened. <laughs> they've got the story of judgment there in some sense or another. But none of them seems to live in the fear of the Lord. It's like it never happened, really. Or they've reinterpreted it to mean something else. Well, we'll look at that a little bit more next time. Instead, it seems, though, that the common heart shared by mankind that we see emerging here is, as predicted, is just like that sentence at the end of chapter 8, that every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. It's a heart of rebellion that beats in the breast of mankind. I look out there, I look at all of you, and I think to myself, oh, look, they just look like rebels, don't they? Rebellion, though, rebellion against God. The psalmist captures that heart in his second psalm when he writes this. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. And throw off their fetters. That's the heart of mankind. Now, why do we incline this way? Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, I'm not a rebel. We'll talk about that in a second. But why does the, the heart of mankind rebel that way? I think it's simply because we don't like anyone telling us what we should do or how we should live our lives. We don't like it when people do that. 
Oh, it's okay. If they're telling you to live your life the way you want to live your life, oh, then we're fine. We're not rebels at all. But as soon as someone tells you to live your life a way you don't want to live, oh, the rebellion just rises up, isn't it? You know, to get, to get from Morrison's to church here, okay, think about rebellion in our hearts. There's a lovely cycle path, okay? It goes all the way along, Walton Dam, it's beautiful. It's a sunny day, you're cycling along, and you don't have to do hills, it's great. For some, some magical way, it's flat, even though it's hilly if you go any other route. And you go past Walton Dam, you go into Somersault Park, and then you come along the footpath that goes along the back here. Yeah, you've got all this. Now, there's a cycle path all the way, except, and this is confession time. Just as you get out of Somersault Park, there's a sign, and it says cyclists dismount now I don't always do that because I think it's a silly rule okay <laughs> if I look down that path and it's just completely deserted there's just nobody there at all no pedestrians I don't get off my bike I feel a little tinge of guilt as I do it it's just really ironic isn't it it's like no I will not do that's just stupid I've only another hundred yards and I'm at my destination. I'm not following that rule. I keep cycling. When we think we know better, you see, than the one in authority over us, it, it kindles those flames of rebellion in our hearts. And, and not everybody makes a song and dance about their rebellion. It's not always, you know, violent. Some people just go about it quietly like I do, with nobody looking. But all of us are rebels at heart. And it's most clearly seen when someone's trying to stop us doing the thing we want to do. You know, in a sense, actually, I think there's a lot of truth to him. You know, what actually stops us rebelling, it's really only the fear of the consequences, isn't it? Opportunity. As soon as you give an opportunity and there's, and there's, there's nothing to stop you and you know you can get away with it or you believe you can, well... We rebel. Do you remember the riots that we had? You know, the quiet man who just works an office job and he's in the street and there's a riot and he goes in and takes an iPhone. Why? He would never do that. Opportunity. Everyone else around him's doing it. The window's broken, it's there, it's sitting in front of him. He makes himself a criminal. It's a rebellious heart, isn't it? And it gets revealed within us. Don't you see it in your own heart? I see it in mine. If God's word says something that we agree with anyway, well, we're pleased to follow it, aren't we? But as soon as we encounter something in God's word that we just don't like, it grates against us. We don't agree with it. It's not what we want to do. It's not how we want to live. Well, what do we do? We try to figure out a loophole, don't we? We'll get every single book on the subject until we find someone who agrees with us. Someone, somehow we're going to reinterpret it. It's a rebellious heart. Or we just walk away in our rebellion. See, now listen, the trouble with continually trying to twist and reinterpret and adjust what God says in the light of what you'd actually really like him to be saying is that eventually you find that you've created a new version of God, your own version of God. A God who is not actually God at all and is simply, at the end of the day, an idol made in your image with all of your tastes and, uh, and opinions and preferences. A 
and you become like the God. You become like the idol that you worship. Here it seems that the course of humanity is yet again dictated by their own rebellious will. And it results in violence and immorality. It's the whole same story over again. We are a common family and we have a common heart. But there is also, and this, this is where it gets a bit lighter, it's wonderful. There is, even in this genealogical, genealogical record, this list of names, there's a glimmer of God's common grace I want you to see before we finish this morning. A common grace. Now, when we talk about common grace, that's actually uh, like a theological term. What we're talking about when we talk about common grace is we're talking about the undeserved goodness of God towards all of mankind, regardless of their rebellion and of their sin. Now, the Apostle Paul, again, he expressed it really well on his first missionary visit to the city of Lystra in southern Turkey. If you were here for our uh, Acts series, you'll, you'll know this. You can look it up. It's a fascinating little visit. They go to this, this sort of pagan town in southern Turkey. So the missionaries are there. And they perform a, a miraculous healing in that town. A man who is paralyzed is healed and he can walk again. And it causes quite a stir amongst all of these pagan idolaters and idol worshippers. And eventually they come to the conclusion that, well, Paul and Barnabas, they must actually be the embodiment of Hermes and Zeus, the Greek gods. And before the missionaries can do anything about it, the people have prepared a sacrifice and they're ready to offer a sacrifice to the missionaries. And Paul addresses the crowd and he says this. It's in Acts chapter 14. He says, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Now listen. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Good or evil then, God-fearing or pagan, God in undeserved kindness sends the rain. He provides for all of mankind. Do you see that? That, that is common grace. And common grace is the testimony of the goodness of God to the whole world. Not only does God, under, and we, as we've seen just previously, under the rainbow of, of, his, of his covenant, hold back judgment, but he also provides for the rebellious nations of the earth. And not only that, he knows them. He knows them too. Their names are recorded in his book. I mean, here they are in Genesis chapter 10. It's a stunning thing, really, isn't it? All of these names written down here in Genesis 10, they're there not to be forgotten. Because God knows, God cares, and God knows about all people. He knows the complete number, 70. He knows the complete number of them. There's no one missing. He knows all of their comings and all of their goings. Listen to Paul in Athens again. He says this to the philosophers in Athens. He says, from one man... He made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he, that is God, determines the times set for them, the exact places where they should live. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Can you see the, the, the care of God over every human being? There's no accident of history that determines where the nations spread out to or the places where they settle. See the providential care of their maker. He knows them. He knows their name. He knows their address. He knows them. Have you ever thought about how strange the book of Jonah is? You know the story of Jonah? With the word Joppa in it, clearly. Leaving aside even the fact that, you know, we've got the whole great fish incident, which makes it a very interesting story. Have you noticed how all the other prophets, really, essentially, their focus, well, maybe not all of them, but most, almost all of them, their focus is on Israel and on Judah. But Jonah sort of stands out a bit. He's concerned with that city. One of those cities actually founded by Nimrod, Nineveh. And what does God know of Nineveh? Well, look at the, look at the first verse of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. I'm sorry, I thought God was looking at Israel. No, no, no. The wickedness of Nineveh has come up before him. He knows not just their name, not just their address. He knows their sin. He knows their wickedness. He's not lost track of what's going on outside of Israel. And this is really interesting, isn't it? Think about all of those generations of people who lived and died between the days of Noah and those of Abraham. Countless thousands. And the countless millions who have lived and died since. Listen, God knew every one. They all lived their lives before his very eyes. He has, according to those verses in Acts 14, testified to them by his gracious provision. The joys of life that they experience. Now, we will never know in this life how many of them called on the name of the Lord. We'll never know. But you can be sure he provided for them and he knew them. They didn't just slip quietly by. And not only does God graciously provide for and know every person on the earth, all the peoples, he has a plan for them. He has a plan for them. When God promised that a serpent crusher, you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, a serpent crusher would come from the seed of the woman? That was not a promise made to Israel, was it? They didn't even exist, actually, at the time. Nor was it made to any other nation or people. It was a promise made to mankind, to all of us. It was made directly to our common ancestor. And so the salvation of the nations then becomes the song of the psalmist. Look at this from Psalm 60, 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation amongst all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. 
May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. It's the song of the psalmist. It's the great task of the church. Jesus comes at the end of Matthew 28, comes to his disciples and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it is also going to be gloriously fulfilled, this hope, this plan. In his vision, the Apostle John sees that fulfillment in heaven and records for us, after, I, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see this? This plan, this thread running through the whole of the story of Scripture. From the very start, God's plan was always to send a redeemer. One who would end the reign of the serpent and would do so for all nations, for you and for me, for everyone out there. And that redeemer is Jesus. And it is our joyful work as the people of God, members of his family, ambassadors of his king. It's our joyful work to take to the nations that good news of the redemption that can be found in Jesus. Christianity is not a Western religion. It's insane to think that, isn't it? It's a global, it's a global one. From the very first days of the church in Jerusalem, we have proclaimed, along with the Apostle Peter, that Jesus is the only saviour for all the nations. Salvation is found in no one else, says Peter, for there is no name under heaven, so that's everywhere, given to men, all men, by which we must be saved. Man or woman, slave or free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, anything in between. Jesus then is the name that's been given to you to call on to be saved. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to call on the name of Jesus? Well, it's not just about the name. It's about the person behind the name. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect man. He lived a life of perfect obedience. There was no rebellion in his heart. And despite the fact that he was mighty God in the flesh, he was rejected, hated, despised by the very people that he came to serve. And they nailed him to a cross. He was no victim. He was the mighty one. Jesus gave his life willingly out of love for lost rebels like you and me. He bore in his body the punishment for our idolatry, for our rebellion, for our sin. And he died the death that we deserve to die. But he rose again, victoriously from the grave, having paid our debts in full. That's the Redeemer. That's the Savior. To call on his name simply means to put your trust in him, to call on him in repentance, to confess your sin and trust in his salvation. 
and we, the Church of Christ, brothers and sisters, our job is to, is to warn people, just as Paul did in Athens, that now is the time to leave your idols. Now is the time to, to stop that rebellious heart and put your trust in him. Stop living for and worshipping anything in place of the true living God. Paul says this, just finally. He says this to the philosophers of Athens. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. You know, your rebellion, your living for anything but him, your idolatry. God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. There's one common family of mankind. We're all in it. All of us share a common, rebellious, idolatrous heart. But praise God, he has graciously sent us his promised saviour. And he is a saviour for all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we see again and again, as we gaze into the mirror of your word, we see our sinful hearts and our desperate need of a saviour. So we thank you for sending such a one, a saviour for all. Father, grant that we, your people here in Chesterfield, would shine the light of your gospel in our town, in our country, even to the ends of the earth, that the nations would praise you and glorify the name of your son in whose good name we pray amen